Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Depends on where you are in this world. My part of the world is Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Training Center in Doral, Miami, Florida. And we're here today with uh, Captain Mike, Mike Dugan. Uh, the man behind the curtain that you don't see is Peter Prokeo. And uh, from the great uh, White North, just back from his moose hunting uh expedition in uh, Yellowknife Northwest Territories is our Canadian brother, James Johnson. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, we got Captain Clark Lamping of the uh, Clark County Fire Department. Uh, before we begin our session today, I've asked Captain Mike to say a few words about our, our brother, Bobby. And, uh, and then we're going to go ahead and we're going to go on with the program. Mike, if you could take have the honors. I would love to, Bill. Thank you. Um, we just have to give a shout out to our brother, uh, Bobby Halton, who left us uh, right before Christmas on Monday, December 19th. Um, Bobby was one of my best friends. Uh, he helped all of us in the fire service. And um, the things I want to say about my friend Bobby is he was a man of faith. He believed in family. He believed in the fire service, he believed in his faith, and he believed in everyone around him. He made you a better fireman for being a friend of Bob's. And I don't care if you met him once or a hundred times, he always treated you the same. He was a gentleman. And I think each and every one of us as paying homage to Bob should try to be a little more like him and be that type of person, be a mentor, be a friend, and be that type of person. Uh, I was lucky enough to attend his service in uh, Collinsville, Oklahoma, which was a very, very small service, which his wife had asked for. And I know there's going to be something done out at FDIC in his memory. So for those of you who couldn't make it with us out to Collinsville, Oklahoma, uh, we look forward to seeing you and remembering Bobby at FDIC. And I'm not sure what this, that's going to entail yet, but I think it's going to be uh, an incredible thing. So uh, we look forward to it. And for those of you who see myself, Captain Gustin, um, Clark Lamping, Jimmy James, uh, see and any of our other contestants at FDIC, please come up and share your story about Bob with us. Uh, we wanna keep his memory alive because of what he did for the fire service. Godspeed, brother. Yeah. We're all better people because of him. Uh, I wanna thank our good friends at Key, keyhose.com, namely um, Dave Hibben, and uh, Mark Lighthill, who I just talked to this, this morning. Dave Hibben and Mark Lighthill are both veteran firefighters. Yes, they're, they make their living selling key hose. That, that's fine, they have to put food on their table. But you know you're getting years of experience that comes with that hose and they're always striving to do the best uh, make the best product for the fire service. Uh, last time I checked, I think we're still a capital, capitalist economy. 
Uh, and as such, uh, every hose manufacturer is trying to uh, create the, the, the best product they can. There's different grades, different models. As I say it on every uh, one of these hangouts, take the key challenge, try to kink the key hose. We're going to resume with where we, we left off last month. And we were talking about fires in commercial buildings. And I asked James uh, to be our special guest because um, a fellow uh, from his side of the border reached out to both of us about a particular type of uh, roof system, uh, which is uh, commonly found in uh, parking structures. However, it's... Uh, it turns out it's not just in parking structures in Canada, uh, in Canada, and in my part of the world, it's everywhere. And we don't ever want to equate the massive concrete size and appearance of pre-cast, pre-tension, pre-stressed concrete structural members. We're talking about twin T roofs. That includes twin T roofs with any degree of fire resistance. So, James, I'm going to, I have some pictures and um, let's see, let's go, let's go with the pictures first. Uh, and then I'm going to have James uh, opine on some of these things. Uh, I think the deck one, ah, there, that's what we're talking. Perfect, Peter. That's what we're talking about. Now, you would think that that is. Heavy-duty, fire-resistive, uh, type 1 construction. It is hardly, hardly that. Okay, that's the way it looks. And the two, what would you say, James, webs or the flanges? The webs. Yeah, right? yeah you, could, you, could call it, um, you could call it a web. Um, like I, I always like to kind of think of it as like the top of the T is like, if you think of it in conventional kind of terms, that's like a decking. And then you'd have like your, your beam or your joist. Um, if you kind of think about it in that way is the, is the web, um, just kind of keep terminology kind of similar. Okay. And James, are we talking about the same thing? You and I? Yes, for sure. Okay. Next, next slide there. Uh, okay. Now. This is an interesting uh, picture. It's twin T's that collapsed. And this was not a hot fire. This was a nasty smoldering fire in a um, warehouse containing bulk rolls of paper that they're going to make toilet paper out of. So as you can see that they've lost their bearing, one of the scary things about this, and James, I'm going to ask you uh, what your code requires. Our codes only require four inches of bearing surface. In other words, the, the end of the T would rest on a pilaster or a girder uh, or uh, a column, and uh, there would only be four inches of bearing surface. Now, yes, there is welded embedments, if you will, uh, angle iron embedded in the structural member and its bearing surface, but that is not enough to withstand the sag. Now, that roofing, to the best of my knowledge, is TPO, and I wrote it down here. That would be 50 cents, please. Thermoplastic polyolefin, 
It's a single ply membrane. I just had a discussion with a guy that uh, was in the roofing business. And he tells me that that kind of roof is a double-edged sword. Yes, it does not burn. But he's been to fires where he's seen, like over here to your left. What's underneath that? What is under, is there, is there anything underneath that? So it is entirely conceivable that the structural member, the whole roof deck could come down and the TPO membrane would remain intact. Very scary. And definitely a, uh, a teaching moment for sounding with your tool. Do we have any more pictures in that collection there? Okay, this is how they're made. Uh, you have a concrete form. And oh, by the way, over to the right, you will see a, uh, one of its cousins. That is a, uh, that could use that for a roof or a floor slab. But it has, that right there is about 50% nothing but airspace. Sometimes they fill those cells with um, uh, styrofoam or some kind of insulation, and they are more vulnerable to fire exposure than these guys. But that's what you're looking at is that's the form at the precast plant. We got another one there, uh, Peter. Otherwise, we'll go to the next uh, uh, group of slides. Stand by, Bill. I'm trying to try to get yeah. it. No, you're doing a great job. Great job. So, are you seeing this one, Bill? Hang on. No, I'm seeing uh, the fire engineering logo. No worries, man. We'll get it. <clears throat> okay. There we go. This is the dip. This is pretension pre-stress before they pour the concrete that's the form they will tension those cables to i think uh, james around thirteen thousand pounds you would measure those in newton meters wouldn't you yeah uh, no we, we we use the we use the same system for that sort of stuff James, I'm trying to impress the audience with my international <laughs> flair. Newton meters. Okay, next one, Peter. Ah, so that device there puts the tension on this sucker and like I say, to several thousand uh, pounds. Hey, James, how about kips? Is that a Kips, yes. Kips, okay. Yes. All right, so... You and I are the only two guys in the North American continent who knows what kips are. <laughs> All right, next slide. Okay, they got this contraption. They pour the concrete into that thing. Keep going. Ah, this is the scary part right there, James. Is Yes, there's a weld right there at that joint between that girder and the, uh, the T. But it is not strong enough to withstand the, the sag. Next. All right. Why that is not on the ground, I don't know. But the way that this thing can span fairly great distances, 50, 60, 70 feet, you see them on truck trailers, flatbed trailers, is that you know all of us students of the fire service understand that there's very little, if any, compressive strength in concrete. It derives its strength in compression, not tension. 
So what they're doing is those cables are pulling this concrete together to the point where it'll actually form like a, uh, a crown for drainage. Uh, anything else you got there? Okay, that has to do with metal deck roofs. We'll talk about that later. And in fact, when we get to that, I'm going to have Mike weigh in on that because uh, they've got some pretty strict, um, uh, and we'll, we'll wait for that video later. Okay, James, um, can you give us our read on what we just were looking at and any recommendations? <clears throat> yeah, so um, there's a couple things that uh, immediately come to mind. and. Um, when we talk about building construction knowledge in the fire service, um, a lot of times we try to oversimplify things and we look at like different materials like, you know, wood burns quick or it, it burns and, and then concrete. A lot of times we'll, we'll talk about concrete as having inherent fire resistive qualities, uh, but we oversimplify things to the point where um, you might have new firefighters or people that aren't necessarily um, you know, haven't learned about this stuff yet and they see concrete and they think that it's safe or you know there's less risk but uh, we really have to be able to identify the difference between cast in place or like monolithic poured concrete and and what you're showing there with the precast where it's very segmental so that like when you see as you look at all those all those buildings and the pictures that you showed um, it really relies on the connection points for for all your structural stability and those, all those buildings are, are designed to be used as one solid system. So you start to lose one of those connection points and then, and then it um, ends up going from there. So I think like a key thing for the viewers is when you're looking at these types of buildings is to think about it. Is it monolithic? Is it all, you know, tied together one solid pour or is it a bunch of little pieces that's relying on connection points, which all those connection points end up being susceptible to fire damage at some point. Now, what does the term cold joint mean to you? Um, I, I, in, in what way are you, are well, you referencing it? Uh, I have a, a mentor and he mentions cold joints as opposed to a monolithic pour where they would pour the tie beam with the column all at the same time. So um, can you have monolithic without having to pour it all at the same time. You, I guess you could, like if you're, if you're, um, I'm trying to think of what an example of that would be, but um, there's tie definitely- beam in a column. What was that, sorry? Tie beam in a column. Yeah, so you, you, have, you have multiple individual pieces and then you're using something to tie it all together after. Um, okay, which is- For rebound. sure. Rebound. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, can we show the next picture? And I'd like to ask Mike, because his department has very specific rules on these types of roofs. Um, okay, this is from a NIOSH, and you know what this is. You got the melted asphalt that ran down uh, the exterior wall. This is consistent with a combustible metal deck roof fire. Uh, and do we have one more picture? Yeah, uh, Captain Mike, uh, they actually, they cut this roof and uh, you can see you've got your corrugated metal deck there that looks like about 18 or 20 gauge. And then you've got your uh, poly, probably poly iso cyanurate 
uh, insulation. You've got some kind of uh, board there to cover the insulation. I believe they call it a, like a roof board or recovery board. And then you've got, uh, in this case, you've got uh, uh, modified bitumen and then, uh, or hot mopped, or hot mopped. Yeah, and then and then uh, and then a gravel ballast. Now, Mike, uh, I know that you guys have specific rules on the FDNY when it comes to certain uh, commercial routes. So we all kind of looked at the F FDNY for uh, for what they're doing and what their policies are. So. Um, could you give us a little bit of insight as to your department's view of commercial roofs? Well, again, it depends on what the commercial roof is made of and what type of building it is. You have to know, and you have to know your district and you have to know your buildings from a size of. Is it a, an older bowling alley, supermarket, bowstring truss? I mean, we can go back to uh, 78, the wall bombs fire where we lost uh, the six men. Okay, um, bowstring truss roofs are dangerous. Is it a, um, a pre-tensioned concrete roof? And if you're cutting into that, are you cutting that, you know, you're gonna cut that tension. Is it, a, um, is it a metal roof? Well, very honestly, the metal roofs, if you go up and look at it, and I highly recommend everyone out there, if they're putting a new metal roof in a building near you, you go out there and drill on it. Look at where they line the pieces of the metal up and they don't have to join together over a support. There doesn't have to be a support. It can be over a couple of inches and they weld it together. So now if the support is here and you're cutting on this side of the support, now you don't have anything. If you're cutting here and it's just tack welded over here, you're gonna have a problem. You're gonna be sanding on unsupported, okay? Because the metal, is rigid when it goes up there, but we all know what heat does to the metal. Uh, you can look at uh, Frank Brannigan's construction book. You can look at Vinnie Dunn's construction book, and you can say what's going to happen to this roof structure and also our concrete roofs. A lot, I think a lot of the damage that happens to those concrete roofs, like you show, is that pre-tensioned concrete, when it gets heated, the steel has to expand. It expands and it changes the tensioning and then the concrete loses its, its uh, strength because the, the material is moving. It's ripping inside it. So all of those points. And the other thing is on your walls, if they're only four inches allowed and now it starts to deflect down and then it's cool, it might pull off that wall and cause a catastrophic failure. So you have to have an idea of what type of building you are in and what the roofing system is. One of my favorite things is a good company officer going in to any kind of a commercial building. There's smoke. It could be that light smoke condition, that paper, burning cardboard, whatever else you're going to be there for a long time. First thing you do is have somebody pop a hole or a tile in the ceiling and look up. If you have practiced with your thermal imaging camera, you should be able to identify the construction from underneath because you have practiced this in all of your other buildings. Uh, 
I don't know. Jimmy will be uh, Jimmy Davis, captain of Engine Forty Three, will be with us. But he sent us all a group email, and um, he relates to a uh, refers to a, a, a double LODD fire uh, where two uh, firefighters in Chicago entered a uh, a bowstring truss roof building, and it, the issue here wasn't uh, initially a collapse, but it was that that space up above between the bottom cord and the top cord is massive so that it would it, it acted as a reservoir for hot flammable gases and i could be wrong on this and i will correct myself later if i am jimmy's but, jumping on he just landed back at quarters okay i'm going to have him tell the story if uh but in <clears throat> And speaking about that, Bill, out doing building inspection with the FDNY, went into some old buildings that were trust buildings. And if you are a student of the fire service, you know about Hackensack Ford. But in Hackensack Ford, they went up into the attic space where the trusses were, and they stored all of the parts up in the attic space. We have gone into buildings where the owners of the building have cut out some of the, uh, between the top web and the bottom web, the spaces to put plywood down and put supplies up there. Well, now they're changing the whole dynamic of the engineering of that cord because they're putting it under a stress, depending on whether it's an old heavy timber or a newer one, people are doing this. You have that, to get out. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off cap. Um, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, uh, you br that brings up, like, a really good point. We talk about, like, the the, um, the twin T system, and you talk about the heat losing that tension in the pre-tension pre cables. It's the same thing as when we have, like, a truss like Hackensack, where they had all the auto parts stored on the top side. As soon as we lose the tension in a horizontal structural member, like those T's, we're flipping the load on it. And we're, in, we're loading the structural member in a way that wasn't intended. And that's, you know, Hackensack, that's a good, kind of a very similar phenomenon is what happens when you lose the tension in those, in those beams. James, I participated in, uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland. Montgomery, yeah, Montgomery County, Maryland. We, uh, a USAR building collapse drill, and uh, they brought in a huge twin T and put it on the top of the rubble pot. Now, you know, the twin is designed and intentioned to be uh, the weight is supported in the, in the ends. And they put that thing and it just cracked like a cookie, just like that. And I'm not completely sure, but I believe that was also a factor in the Florida International University bridge walkway bridge collapse uh, uh, of a few years ago. Before Jimmy comes on, uh, Clark and I have discussed this in the past. It has to do with roof coverings. Clark, you were telling me about a fire where you chased you guys off the roof. And because of the type of uh, either the insulation or the covering uh, that was installed. Do you recall that incident? Yes. Yeah, that was a near miss for our agency. Um, we had a an old uh, large big box and a church bought it. And so they're remodeling the church and they were underneath tack welding 
the uh, doing some repairs, tack welding the metal trusses to the Q decking, the metal deck roof. The roof covering was uh, polystyrene styrofoam, uh, in two inches of styrofoam covered with the TPO that you're talking about, Captain Gustin. And then they must have had a roof leak uh, at some point because they put another inch of polystyrene coating and another TPO on top of it. So that was the roof decking. So they had uh, the heat from the tack welding underneath started the, the polystyrene on fire and the truck company entered on the Delta side. There was a very strong wind going from Bravo to Delta. So they entered downwind, um, entered as soon as, and I've got pictures and videos of all this. Um, as soon as they crossed the parapet, they took a look at it. It was about a hundred square feet of fire. It was about a 10 by 10, 10, 10 by 10. They entered the roof. They started hooking up their hoses. They were going to use the truck as a standpipe. They're hooking two and a half inch hoses to the front of the bucket. And the helmet cam is them looking down, uh, getting their, their hoses, their nozzles ready. And then you can just see the, the shadow of the smoke over them. And as the firefighter looks up with his helmet camera, the fire is in his face. It was about 60 seconds. The fire traveled 150 feet in 60 seconds and was this massive. It went from 10, it went from about 100 square feet to about 250,000 square feet. I'm no, I'm sorry, to about 12,000, 12,000 square feet of burning material. Um, and chased them onto the bucket. They dropped everything. They left the saws on the roof. They left the hoses on the roof, pulled the bucket off, and it was a legitimate near miss. Um, and some things they didn't take into consideration were the roofing material. And that was the only thing that was burning was the polystyrene. It was the styrofoam roofing material. And we need to treat this. They should have treated this like a wildland fire. All right. You need to stand in the black. You need to be upwind, fight the fire down. They pretty much got caught on an urban wildland fire. They were standing in the fuel and they were downwind from the fire. And it it flashed on them and it came down. And the, the pictures and the videos are next next uh, next hangout. We'll show the videos and the pictures of it. But we damn near lost a whole truck company that day. The whole truck company. Uh, you know, there are a couple of things like that, Quark. I don't know if you remember the Sacramento close call. With the brothers on the Sacramento, where they jumped uh, onto the parapet, yeah, the nail, and the nail roof, the na the nail salon roof, yep, and it was a roof over with um, sheetrock. Okay, it was the dens deck was the material that they mm -hmm. used, dens deck. but it was a sheetrock over because they were leaking into the place that was making the fake nails in the nail salon. They were making them in the back room. So they had all of the chemicals in there and that water doesn't do well with the chemicals. And they were up on the roof and they were cutting it. And when you get the gypsum roof decking, they got the white powder, didn't think about it too much and nothing coming out of the hole. And I talked to one of the guys who was on the roof and he goes, and I look over and there's fire coming out of the air conditioning unit on the roof. And he goes, it should have clicked. It should have clicked. It didn't. And he goes, I didn't think about that. And then the roof just dropped and they got to the parapet and got off. And it was so close, so close that it was unbelievable. So there are so many of those, those close calls that we get, that we have, as you said, with the uh, burning roof material and everything else, it happens frequently. We get these things. I got a question for Clark, if that's okay, Cap. Um, so like for us and I'm, and probably for Captain uh, Dugan and stuff on the East Coast, Florida, um, you guys on the West Coast, the 
um, deal with panelized roofs and other things in your commercial. Up here, we don't have that in Canada. Um, like, so like when we go to a commercial, we, we have a very, very good idea of what's gonna be underneath our feet uh, or above our heads. Do you guys, um, like, is there clear signs of something's gonna be typical open web steel joists and Q decking versus, versus panelized? Or is that something that no. you're cutting an inspection hole right away? Or is that your Absolutely. identification? First, first saw comes off the truck, we put an inspection hole right where we stand and, and not right where we stand. We take a couple steps so it's not in the path of egress. We put a we put a, an inspection hole and we're looking for five things. We're looking for the type of construction. We're looking for the direction of construction. We're looking to the thickness of the roofing material, the location of the fire and the amount of smoke. That's immediately before we take another step on that roof. I need those five five questions answered right there. Because it's interesting, I was in the Sacramento area teaching a number of years ago, and there was um, on one side of the street, there was a, like it was, um, forget the area, out Sacramento metro area, but there was uh, a tilt-up building with panelized on one side that was being built. And then on the other side, it was a concrete masonry unit with open web steel joists and Q-decking, and they were both going up at the same time. And the outside, you know, you'd have no idea which one was panelized and and which one, and they were, you know, built at the same time, essentially. So, Clark, would you please repeat those five uh, factors that you uh, consider? Right. So, um, we're going to make an inspection cut, and it's big enough that you can actually put your head in and take a look underneath. And you're looking for the type of construction, just like James was saying. Are we on a panelized? Are we on a steel web uh, truss? Are we on uh, concrete? So, you're looking for the type of construction. You're also looking for the direction of construction. If it's a panelized, I'm looking for the main beam. All right, I'm looking for the main beam. Um, so type of construction, direction of construction. I want to know the thickness and the type of the roofing material. So I know if it's if it's a metal deck, and I'd like to talk to both all, all three of you gentlemen, what are your thoughts on cutting, actually cutting a metal deck for ventilation? Um, how do you do it? Yeah, I, I've had very, very bad experiences, uh, even with all these the different types of blades we have, can't can't get through a metal deck roof, especially if it has insulation on it. In, in Las Vegas, we have no metal deck roofs that aren't insulated because you're, the inside of your building would be 150 degrees if you didn't insulate it. So to get through all the roofing material and then access the metal deck and then try to put a saw in a metal deck, especially on a large commercial, on a large commercial, mathematically speaking, if you want to ventilate a Home Depot, your standard Home Depot is 105,000 square feet, and it's 30 feet tall. So doing the math, that's 3,100,000 cubic feet of air inside that building. If you want to use a mathematical formula to ventilate a Home Depot, you're going to need a hole that's 30 by 100 feet to accurately to successfully ventilate a Home Depot. I don't know about you guys, but... To cut a metal deck roof, a 30 by 100 foot hole in a metal deck roof, that's going to take, you can come back shift trade. You guys are going to have to relieve you on the roof. The next shift is going to have to finish the hole for you. I think um, two shifts. Two shifts, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, back to the original question, Captain Gustin. So you're looking for the type and thickness of roofing material. And then you want to know uh, if you can see fire or uh, color and density of smoke coming out of the hole. So those are the five factors, the five questions we need answered before we take another step onto that roof. We're past the midpoint. I just want to shout out again to my, my good friends at Tehoe's, uh, Mark Lighthill and Dave Hibben. Dave Hibben from DC Engine 10, and one of the busiest engine companies in the world when he was on it, and uh, running door-to-door -door socialized medicine calls day and night with an occasional fire thrown in. 
So did we ever get uh, Jimmy on board or is he, uh, did he have to roll out the door again? Oh, no. Okay. Uh, Mike, can you talk to us about gypsum deck on uh, commercial buildings? Gypsum deck on commercial buildings. Uh, gypsum deck roofing material. Different manufacturers, different things. Um, gypsum deck was the new best thing to come through. Uh, and everybody was using it. it was supposed to be on all commercials. I have pictures in one of my uh, PowerPoints of a firehouse in New York State getting a gypsum deck roofing uh, material on the roof. Uh, the problem with gypsum deck is gypsum is vulnerable to moisture. Okay, the dens deck is sheetrock with a thin layer of ply of, of not a plywood of fiberglass on it to hold its strength together. Right. Right. Um, we get gypsum deck. We say it and gypsum deck. Uh, I don't have the um, the thing with me, but the gypsum deck. We have a PowerPoint slide that New York City put together where they're using nails to hold gypsum deck roofing in place. Um, six penny nails to hold gypsum deck den decks in place. The problem is it's a nail. And if the deck gets wet, the nail starts to oxidize. The other thing is the gypsum's deck, just like we talked about the metal, the support is here. It could end on either side of the support. And now you cut the gypsum and you're standing on air. There is no support underneath it. They stagger the ends of it and they're tongue and groove. So you could have a half inch of gypsum decking on the roof with a, with a groove going into that tongue. So you're talking about the groove being less than a quarter of an inch, okay? Holding that together. So we say, if you get up there, and you see that white powdery substance coming out of the saw, means it's a gypsum deck roof, immediately notify command and get off the roof, get off the roof. If you get up there and you put your saw down and it goes through the roof like warm butter and you look at your bunker pants and it looks like uh, you stepped in dog, you know what? and there's mud and stuff all over your bunker pants, that's wet gypsum being shot up by your saw. Get off the roof. We do not put firemen on gypsum roofs because of the danger, the inherent danger of gypsum roofs, okay? It's not allowed. We're not going to do it. And if you see it going up there, you should go up there and see what they're putting on there. See how it's done. Um, I... Um, when I was teaching a lot of building construction stuff, I used to lie like a rug and say I was a contractor. And I'd call these companies and say, could you send me stuff? And I still have pieces of um, hurricane windows, dens deck, and everything else that I've gotten. And you look at these things and try to figure out how they are doing this. And it's engineered, but it's not engineered for us, the impact load for a stream hitting it, an impact load, or the fire damaging the support that's underneath it. So we have a major problem here. So we have to look at what our roofs are made of. You have to know your district and you have to know your buildings. And if in doubt, find out. 
Go up and sound that roof, as we said. Sound it. See what's going on up there. Figure out what you're going to do. Do not commit yourself too far onto these roofs until you know what's going on underneath you. And we talked about the steel roof. The gypsum roof is the same thing. If you need to ventilate that building, there's that much fire load underneath you on a metal deck or a gypsum roof, you do not belong on the roof. The support systems are probably already uh, starting to fail. So you don't belong going up there, okay? Now, in the city of New York, we go up onto the roofs and we will ventilate natural ventilation holes. The other thing you all have to look at on roofs is what happened in Denver with the line of duty where the guy fell through the roof panel skylight, which is plastic. And it has happened a couple of different times where guys have fallen through these things, okay? And that happens. We had it happen in the city of New York in a repair. People are breaking into the building through the roof. So they take out the skylight and instead of putting the two by tens that the roof was made out of, what two by twelves, they put in two by fours and they just cover it with tar paper. And they make so now a fireman is up there right through the roof. We call that a fireman's trap. Okay, you gotta know what's going on. If you're in an inspection of a building and you look up and see a difference in construction up there, and I was up in uh, New Hampshire one time looking at this huge building that used to make tanks for the space shuttle. 70 feet up, they took the skylight out and they re-put it back in with two by eight construction when the rest of the roof was steel. Uh, did, we, did we lose Jimmy? Peter, I see you're muted, but uh, does anybody see Jimmy? Yeah, Jimmy is on, but I think he stepped away, unfortunately. So okay, okay, uh, all right. So um, we have very much the same feelings about that. Uh, Mike, I had a uh, we had a, a brother on our job, Avery 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 Hill, who was on a drill and stepped onto a gypsum deck roof on a drill and the the water had deteriorated the gypsum and to the point that it was well you know what drywall happens when you get it wet that's it it's like you say it's that muck the poor man fell through the roof 30 feet snapped his just it is a miracle that he came back to where he, he could have gone off, but he had the, as we say in Miami, he had the Corazon, and, uh, but it doesn't have to be a fire. Uh, it, it could just be a bad water leak. In fact, most of my pictures of water-damaged gypsum roofs were taken in medical calls where roofers had fall, fallen through it. And can I mention one other thing uh, while we're still looking for, for Jimmy? If you go to a fire and there's roofers there and there's a fire that is in the attic or on the roof deck and or the roofers have just left, if there is not a tar kettle there, it's a torch, it's a torch, it's a torch all day long. I don't care what the roofers tell you. It is a torch and they're putting down a torch down typically a modified bitumen uh, roofing material. 
And if I, if I remember right, James, you are not supposed to torch apply a roof to uh, a combustible substrate. Is that correct? It's illegal in New York City to use a torch applied roofing system on any roof of combustible construction. Now you can do it on a metal roof. You can do it on the uh, concrete roof, but you cannot do it on a roof of combustible construction. Now, Mike, there was a couple of, like four or five summers ago, you guys had a rash of fires, roof fires, a rash. And so is this, uh, did they change the ordinance after that rash of roof fires? Or oh, it's always been that way. It's been that way for a long time, Bill. Uh, probably 15, 20 years. But again, you're getting people who are not licensed. If you do a torch applied roof, you have to have a certificate <clears throat> of fitness to use the torch, which is a license from the city of New York. You have to have a permit for the combustible gases in the city of New York to transport them. You have to have all of these different things, okay? So now what happens is you get these guys working for $200 a day and they're up there and they don't have any of the procedures or anything else. They end up going up on the roof, starting a fire. They don't even know they started the fire. And the same thing happened, um, where was that place in New Jersey? where they had that huge fire. They burnt the whole building to the ground. It was oh, the oh, Edge, Edge, Edgewater or? Uh, Avalon, Avalon, yeah, Avalon, yeah, yeah. Avalon Bay. Glenys. Avalon Bay maybe, but it was in yeah. Avalon. And that was, they were working in the walls with a torch, okay? Again, they don't have the right um, certificates. They don't have the right knowledge. In the city of New York, you have to take a class to become certified for fire watch for the torch. If you are using a torch in construction, you have to have a fire guard on the level you are using it and the level below. You have to have clear of combustible materials for 30 feet around the torch, 30 feet in all directions. You have to have a watch that has a fire extinguisher or the fire extinguisher was within uh, 25 feet of him, I think it is, it might be 30. And he has to have a clear view of sight and a path of travel. These are all rules in the city of New York that they make for construction sites because of the number of fires we have had. I mean, I can't tell you the number of fires I've been to where I have seen the tar shoe prints coming down the stairs as we're going up there, okay? Uh, the guys hanging off the back of the roofing truck like the clowns on the circus wagon going driving down the road as the fire trucks are pulling down the block. You know exactly what they did, okay? And they disappear and you never hear from that company again. And they started the building on fire. I mean, I've been to some great fires where um, these guys did it with torches. It happens frequently. So there has to be the commercial fires. The thing about commercial fires that always sticks out in my mind is we don't do commercial fires as much as we do residential. So we're less frequent. But what happens in commercial fires is we lose probably a larger percentage-wise of our people for the fires. And we give them a name. 
Yeah. It's the wall bombs fire. It's the Hackensack Ford. It's the Mary Pang. Uh, I can go on and on and on about the, the Southwest um, the su Southwest supermarket, the um, the super sofa store. Okay, you can go on and on and on about these things. Okay, um, again, you've got to be very, very careful about those things. And somebody from Facebook, from Bill Carey, talked about John Whelan in Denver was on the roof and the fire wasn't even in that building. He was checking for extension, okay, and fell through the translucent skylight, okay, on the roof. These happen. If they're in your district, and thank you, Bill, for that, but these guys, if this is in your district, if you have translucent skylights, you have to know about this. And this has to be every time you get a new kid, hey, you're assigned to the truck, come on, we're going out to two Main Street. That's that warehouse. They have translucent skylights. You're going up on this roof <clears> and seeing what they look like, how they're laid out. And you know what? I'm probably going to put it in my dispatch notes for that address that we're not going up on a roof. I'm not going to risk a guy's life to save whatever the building is. But Mike, so, in, in, are these type two non-combustibles, uh, cheap, like almost like a prefab building, uh, the translucent skylight has exactly the same contour as the metal deck roof. So you don't know. It, 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 but the biggest hazard is there's no, in the terms of the roof roofing industry, curbing, if you will, curbing, uh, a little board. A parapet for us. A parapet. There's no parapet around yeah, that. Yeah, 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 like a parapet. Yeah, right. Uh, there right. is none. No. So you don't know that you're going to uh, to get that. Uh, Clark, uh, while we're on the subject of roof coverings, uh, what's your experience with fires and tar kettles? I've, I've been on only a couple of them, and I've never seen this. But we typically, we don't have a lot of tar kettle anymore with the, with the new, uh, the polystyrenes. The majority of all of our roofs are going with the polystyrenes. It's way cheaper. It's way easier. You don't have to have any skilled labor to install it. But I remember coming on as a young fireman, um, the old senior guy said, don't ever put water on a, on a uh, tar pot. Don't ever put water on a tar pot fire. Don't ever do it. And I, yeah, that, that's all I, they, they just harped on that don't ever put water on a tar pot because it will explode and send boiling hot tar everywhere your mama warned you do not yeah. put cold wet chicken wings in the hot oil okay so it's my understanding that to, to bring that asphalt to a molten state they bring it up to about 650 degrees and then work with it at a working temperature of 450 degrees well last time i checked um you indirectly put water on it. In other words, a, a it's like the Monsignor going down the aisles there, giving, giving everybody holy water. A little bit, a little bit on the lid side, little bit, little bit, little bit in the thermal column so that it flashes the steam before it hits the surface and then forms an emulsion. The most qualified guys to put out tar kettles are little old Cuban men about this, this tall uh, with a beat up old wife beater shirt and an old beat up straw hat. They've put out so many of those friggin' fires with a garden hose, but they play with it. 
You know, they come up and they give it a dash and give it a dash. And yeah, a little bit of it comes out, but they're ready for it. But if you direct, uh, if you put a stream in there directly, oh my God, the last time I checked, <laughs> I think water at the boiling point expands, what, 1,700 times. So you can imagine it will come out of there like a friggin' with a vengeance. And I hear these guys say, I was just a tar kettle. Just a car kettle is a big deal, brother. First of all, what about the LP gas? Turn and it off immediately. Yeah, how about that? Turn it off immediately. Stop the heating. Absolutely, Mike. Absolutely. And they'll be pissed if you turn it off because yeah. they won't even be able to go back to work. Just put the fire out a little bit and they'll be pissed. But you know what? You turn it off. You protect your men, your women, your people. You protect them. You turn off the gas immediately. As far as those uh, those metal deck roofs, the, the decking we were talking about with the skylights in it, um, typically you're going to find those those fiberglass skylights on Butler. We call them Butler style buildings. Yes. Which is yes. right. Um, yes. And I got to be honest with you. There's no reason. There's no reason to put any companies on the roof of a Butler style building. They're not designed to hold. Um, they're not designed to hold the weight of a of a firefighter in full gear with the saw. They're going to be well north of 300 pounds. You put two firefighters together and you're going to go through that that corrugated metal. They are not designed to hold people. It is a disposable building to keep the rain out. They're not insulated whatsoever. It is a piece of garbage building that we typically find in chop shops and a lot of illegal stuff going on underneath. So you shouldn't even be. In fact, we have a policy. We have a policy. We do not go vertical on Butler style buildings. See, and we had a couple of firehouses in New York City made out of those. And we call them the tin houses. <laughs> Oh, was that just temporary, Mike? No, no, no. They were there for a long time. Tin house. Yep. Yeah. Some that we see too up here because we're like uh, kind of like the Pacific Northwest, like very moist, lots of uh, precipitation. Uh, we get a lot of mildew up on those roofs too. So I've seen those translucent panels, those like corrugated uh, um, uh, like plexi. Um, and they basically like you can't tell the difference they get so much mildew and stuff on them and uh, kind of like that um, mossy stuff and you can't tell the difference between that and the and the roof decking and the other thing about that that's very important to all of us is how old is the building the sun affects that plastic uh, look at your headlights i just had to replace my wife has a 10 year old car she loves a honda pilot and I just had to replace both washer nozzles because they've been in the sun. It's, we don't have a garage, it's in a driveway. They've been in the sun for 10 years and they cracked and broke. Well, guess what? That building's 10 years old. That translucent skylight has been subjected to the sun for 10 years and is going to be more brittle. And again, I can't emphasize this enough, to the brothers and sisters out there, know your buildings. Go out there and drill on them. And if you're second due to this place, well, the first new company could be out. Go and drill on it. Go with your neighboring companies. Go with your neighboring departments and drill on buildings. One of my heroes is a guy from Worcester, Massachusetts, Mike McNamee, who was the chief who stood at the bottom of the stairs and said, no more guys. No more guys are going into Worcester Cold, Cold Storage Warehouse on December in 1999, okay? Again, he did that. 
okay? He stood there and said no more. But he said, and one of the things, and I love to use this, if you have a building that you are worried about in your response area, you better be there once a month looking at it, planning it. If there's some place that scares you, well, if your people aren't prepared to fight a fire in that building, there is something wrong with your training. Get out there and understand your buildings. Peter, I sent you a uh, safety bulletin that I had uh, uh, abridged or um, edited uh, to take out some of our proprietary information that pertains strictly to my department about uh, when a thermal imaging camera is not enough to get, find your way out. Uh, you think you're gonna be able to post that anytime soon? Well, yeah, I'm hoping to get it up uh, later this week, if not okay. today. Well, yeah, okay, sure. guys, thermal imager is great, but if all you're doing is looking at a maze of walls, you're not gonna find your way out. There's no substitute. And this is why I was hoping that Jimmy uh, was gonna be able to participate with us. He probably got another run, probably a 211 or a 311, maybe a still in box. Um, or back porches. That's all Chicago lingo. He's um, coming. He's coming back on right now. Oh, we'll see. oh, okay, all right. Because I'm going to let him talk about the ropes, about the search ropes. Rope assisted search. Okay, yes. Mike. It's not a rasp. We call it rope assisted search procedures. Rasp, and again, it's important. Jimmy, you got it, brother. You got it. Unmute, Jimmy. Unmute and take us home. Hi, hey, everyone. A little bit late. Sorry. Uh, juggling calls in between. Uh, where did you guys pick up or leave off at here? It was. It sounded a time I was in. You had some good discussion going on. Jimmy, Actually, uh, I know you have very strong thoughts about uh, rope, search ropes. Uh, I'm going to have a feature, uh, maybe today, maybe tomorrow on, uh, the title is, uh, when ticks are not enough to find your way out. And it alludes to the need for the search ropes in, uh, especially in commercial occupancies. Oh, in highly re renovated, uh, um, uh, residential occupancies as well. But the two things I wanted you to talk about would be your ropes and uh, why you find them so necessary and when you find them so necessary. And then the tragic fire where you lost the two firemen uh, because of the gases that collected up into the arch of a bowstring truss. Uh, and we don't have any hard and fast time when we have to stop. So Jimmy, you go, you go ahead and take the floor and bring us home. Yeah, and Cap, I'll talk about first the second part. Uh, with the line of duty death with uh, Patrick King, who uh, was a friend of mine. A line of duty death hurts very much. Not only that to happen anywhere, but when you personally know people, uh, the impact is much greater. And he died alongside our brother, uh, Anthony Lockhart uh, from engine 120. It was truck 45 where Patty King was, uh, Lockhart from engine 120. What the thing was that I wanted to emphasize in these commercial buildings, um, 
is popping or displacing a ceiling tile at your point of entry, just to kind of see what conditions are, gently put it back. All right, as you start digging deeper into the building, you gotta make sure that your, your egress is not cut off. Plus, these conceal a ton of fire up there. Now, fast forward a little bit about that day at 107th and Western was, um, it was a bolstering uh, building. The fire originated up in the storage area. And as a side note, they use that bow area where that hump is for storage. I mean, that's usable space. Nine times out of 10, you're gonna get some type of fire up there. So what happened was the fire originated up there. Uh, you had at the ground floor, right? And this was a, uh, a, a tire mechanic uh, shop. So you had a very light haze, but above in the heat sink, the underneath of the bowl, you had a raging fire going. So there was some conflicting reports uh, with the truck team exterior and interior reports, you, you know, we got fire venting out, fire blown through the roof, but then inside you got a light haze. Two and two is an equaling four. Two and two isn't adding up whatsoever. Uh, there was to this day, we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, there may have been a failure of a, uh, a service garage, which would be a huge inlet for fresh air. Uh, after that, uh, the rest becomes history. They lost their lives and their way trying to get out of this building. All right. So I wanted to make mention of that too, is that really take some caution steps and really investigate when you're going deep into a large footprint building, especially a commercial building and that. Um, going now to that, that first question of the, the search ropes. Now that's in our protocol and I Anyone who's listening, I would strongly advise doing that, especially if you're going into, again, a large footprint area commercial building where, where visibility uh, is going to be a factor. An example, having a fire or even if that uh, obscurity of smoke, you've got to have some lay some type of bed uh, breadcrumbs to get yourself out of this building. So it's protocol for us here in our department is that that search rope is going. And this press really holds two uh, in windowless buildings. And the thing that really just clicks in my mind is Worcester, um, the cold storage, uh, where we lost all our brothers at Faithful Day. Um, could the aid of a search rope may have helped? Yes. Uh, in these buildings, if you're disoriented, you're offline and you lose your build, uh, bearings, you are going to be lost. So that is a built-in safety system. You know, when you're deep into these buildings, you're gonna have two reliances. Either that hose line, try not to get off that hose line, or using that search rope are going to be your two uh, defaults to getting your way out of that building and, and bringing yourself and your crew home. Um, I can't stress the importance. If you're looking to examine what you're doing in commercial buildings, include that search rope again, build the stack of cards in your favor so you can find yourself out of it. And one thing I want to say, Jimmy, and I agree with you wholeheartedly on all that, when I worked on the search row procedure for the FDNY, uh, one of the things that I really pushed for is there are two types of searches off a search row. There's a search for life when the fire has been knocked down or is controlled, and then there's a search for fire. If I am searching for fire and I am going in on a search row, I do not advance more than 50 feet away from that hose line 
because of rapid fire progression in buildings today with the fuel load and everything else, the high ceilings, whatever else, I run a hose line to protect my crew. I go in 50 feet. I'm on 50 feet on my rope, and I know I'm at 50 feet. Okay, bring the hose line to me. You're going to protect me. I'm still looking for that fire. I can't find it yet. And thermal imaging cameras are a big help. But if you can't find this, it's that um, cardboard warehouse, uh, stack rags, cotton. You can't find this fire. You're looking all over. It's cold smoke. You don't know when the air is going to hit it, when it's going to ignite, or what's going to happen and the space is up over your head. There are two types of searches there. Make sure your people know the difference. Make sure they know the difference. Mike, on the topic of cold smoke, I went to, I, I attended a, uh, a school in Rome, Georgia by uh, FM Global. Fact, and uh, the, the, the topic was uh, fighting fire in sprinkler buildings. And they take you into a barn building and um, with light smoke. Light smoke, and there's a fire burning. And when that sprinkler head goes off, Mike, it is lights out. The downdraft and the cooling action of one sprinkler head drives that smoke right to the floor. And man, if you're not on a hose and you're not on a rope, you're not finding your way out. Bill, one of my favorite stories for me was I was a covering lieutenant. I was working in a truck company. And we went out for a water leak and it was in a commercial warehouse and you could hear the alarm going off the sprinkler alarm outside and there was water running down the stairs. We get in there and we forced the door. We got a job. Now it's cold smoke and all that. And I have the, my chauffeur get on the radio and say, transmit the box and give it 1075. And they're like, it's a water leak. He goes, no, it's a sprinkler head. Transmit the box and send us help. We need help. We were probably there for four and a half hours because it was in a place that had um, was doing rags and had all of this stuff. And one sprinkler head went off, but we had to go through and tear all of this stuff up. And the cold smoke, you, you know, it's fatal to you because the cold smoke cools down all the gases in and out, in and out, rotating guys in and out for about three or four hours for a water leak. You never know. Yeah, Cap, if I can uh, jump on uh, here and, and land pretty close to you, too, especially with the cold smoke, you need to know where you're going to put your, your next foot forward. I can recall a fire that I had was an industrial building, another again, large footprint. But what they had was acid vats, acid vats, all right? One foot to two foot above grade that you could have easily, all right, not seeing where you're going, fall into one of these, these vats. It was a metal plate. Metal plating companies, man, are, are, are dangerous to begin with. They have all kinds of stuff. But can you imagine that? Where does that foot go forward? And also with Dan Capuano is another brother we lost in the line of duty, too, in, in these commercial buildings, emphasizes the point where is that foot gonna, going to go? If you are obscured and your visibility is obscured, what do they tell us in day one of the academy? Get your knees, feel what's in front of you. Um, use a probe, the end of your pipe pole, see what's ahead of you. And again, the reliance on the tick, but you also have to have some basic minimum skills that you need to employ too if you don't have a tick. A lot of reliance on the tick, but not every fireman carries that. 
That's a, that's a good I point. personally believe the number one tool that you can take in a commercial building is commercial tactics and commercial strategies. And those guys, I think that's what caused those guys in Wooster to get jammed up. They, they started searching a, the footprint. I think the footprint of that building was 15,000 square foot footprint. And they went into a 15,000 square foot room and they started searching like they were searching a single family house and they got turned around and the lights went out and they couldn't find their way back. They weren't using ticks. That's before they even had ticks. They weren't using search ropes and it was taking residential tactics and strategies into commercial structures. And that is what's going to get us in trouble every single time. Clark, to your point, that is absolutely the correct. And I have to wonder out loud how many firefighters have been killed uh, because they were using residential hose lines, residential tactics, a residential quick attack mentality on a commercial building. And I think we all we're all students here, so we know there's quite a few, quite a few. And I've been caught in that trap as well. Uh, and gotten, the thing is, you get lucky. You get lucky because you're successful when you go into that dollar store with an inch and three-quarter line and a quick attack off the booster tank. And, man, you got it. And then you pat yourself on the back. You just reinforced the kind of behavior that's going to get some people killed. And, Jimmy, you brought something up about that fire at, I think as you said, 107th and Western. The size up from inside and the size up from either from the roof or on the roof. It, you know, I'm a low tech guy. I finally got one of these, but drones, bring them on brother. Bring on the friggin' drones. I'm all for it. Get a drone up there, get it around <clears throat> to the Charlie side, get it up on the roof. You can be clear as a bell. And the fire's ripping through the roof. And I do believe that was a factor in the Chinese restaurant in Boston. Uh, and here's, here's the other thing. Uh, oh, Jimmy, you brought this up in the email. We always tend to go through the front of a commercial, where if it's a restaurant, if it's a business, where the heck's the fire going to be? Yeah, granted, it's locked up like Fort Knox. But the fire is going to be in the back. Mm -hmm. If we can get to the back, we can get it with a reach of a 50 foot reach of our stream rather than going like in the Southwest supermarket, going through a, a, mm -hmm. a serpentine of turnstiles and racks. Uh, and I think that was one of your points. In, yeah, you have to jump onto there too. I remember, and there was a lesson learned when you got to pick up 400 to 500 feet of hose. So we had a, a fire like that too, smoky conditions. Uh, once the fire is out, we evacuated the smoke. Guess what you saw? A man door, not less than 50 feet away. So those assessments, your point of access of where you're going to get in is you try to make a best assessment in the shortest route to the fire, which is going to be the safest route. Give me a 400, 500 foot lead out into these industrial buildings when you had something close by at 50 feet. And not Jimmy, not just what we really need to, to train on is not just going into the building, but how are we going to get out of this building, right? Turn around and look constantly. You take five steps, 
and you turn around and you look at where you came from. You take five more steps and you turn around and look where you came from. In a commercial, actually all fires, but especially commercial buildings, you have to be thinking, how am I going to get out of here if stuff goes bad? Am I going to be able to get out of here? Where's my egress? Did I make a hole large enough in the roll-up door that we can all run out or we're going to have to crawl down because we made the old teepee cut that I'm sure we all learned on 20 years ago? Are we going to have to crawl down on our hands and knees to get out of the hole or are we going to be able to run out standing up? All right. Can, it's, about, it, can you talk about air supply for a minute, Clark, in these big buildings? 50%. 50% air supply. 50% you should be leaving the building. All right. What I also heard, we're training also one-third, one-third, one-third. One third going in, one third coming out, and you have to have one third in reserve when you get out, just in case. So that's something else. We're, so again, extremely manpower intensive. If you're telling these guys you can only work for 15 minutes, now you're going to send a company and you can work for 15 minutes and now you have to get out. All right, you better have a lot of companies to rotate in there because, um, and guys who don't, if you, if you are working until your bell goes off in a commercial building, you are dangerous. You are going to get yourself, your company, and other people hurt or killed because when you go down, now you're risking the lives of all of the RIT teams, everyone, to get you. It is just bad, bad business. Again, commercial, residential tactics and strategies into commercial buildings. Yeah, Kip, I wanted to add on that. And with our search rope that we use through on a rope-assisted search, we have little knots or splaced at 50 foot intervals. That is a time that we use in our department. And I think it makes sense as you do an air supply check. That gets radioed back. So if you come across two knots, you know you're 100 feet in. Now it's a great time to do an air supply check so you don't extend and exceed what you're going to have because you're going to need that air to get back out. Absolutely. So again, it's a safety stop. That to stop to examine and assess your air supply that you have enough to come out. I agree with you 100% in that part. You suck that bottle down, you're in big trouble. Guys, we're going to wrap this up for this month. But well, we've got plenty to talk about next month. James, I want you to come back, brother, if you can. Absolutely. Even if, you, if you're on dog sled or whatever, however you guys do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, we want you back. We like seeing you. And uh, even though you do look like a drummer uh, in an Irish punk rock band, uh, we, <laughs> we love you, man. We, we love you. And uh, so, fellas, uh, until next month, uh, remember Bobby Halton in your prayers. And uh, if you had any experience with him, you know you are a better person. And a better firefighter for it. And um, James, thank you so much for joining us. And Thanks for having me. Let's 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 continue this discussion uh, next month. So until next month, God bless and may He keep you safe in our most noble profession. Amen. <laughs>